Now for our second message today to be brought to us by Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled Pentecost, a new dwelling place, a beachhead, a new creation. Good afternoon. Trying to see how long a sermon title I can come up with and for Sherry to still fit it in the bulletin. You know, speaking on holy days is a challenge because we've all been here before, right? Except for maybe somebody that's just starting to keep the holy days. We have heard holy day lesson and sermon one after another after another. And it's a little daunting sometimes to come up with something new because how many times have we talked about it? And yet, how many times do we forget about the things that these days teach us? Got ready for the explosion? Okay, good, no explosion. That's good. And yet we're commanded to talk about these days in their times, right? In their seasons and to, to meditate on them. And yes, to read the same scriptures and to go over the same material because we forget so easily what these days mean in our day-to-day life as we, we put one foot in front of the other as we're going through a work week or the challenges that we have with, with just everyday life. But yet, when we do spend that time, when we can maybe break away from the obligations and the stresses of the world, we find such richness in the holy days that, that so many people in the Christian world miss out on. And I really wish they would dig into this and incorporate this into their lives and see the richness of what God is trying to teach us. So thinking about Pentecost, there's a lot to think about in Pentecost. There's the Old Testament Pentecost elements. There's the New Testament Pentecost truth that we have. It's rich in meaning. It's poetic. There are some powerful emotional moments in the life of the early Christians in, in that first church being born. If you think about what God did on Pentecost, he actually did something brand new, didn't he? Something that didn't exist before that moment in time. We've had God's interaction with man. We've had his revelation to Abraham and all the way through all the fathers, all the way into Israel's history. But this was something very different. And living 2,000 years on from Pentecost, we tend to forget about that. It's history to us. And yet at this moment, on that first Pentecost day of the church, the new church, it was something radically new. But it's also insufficient for us to just say, well, it was just the birthday of the church. That's when the church became into existence. It was, but it's so much more than that. Or it should be so much more than that 
to each one of us because that's an over, oversimplification. In the day of Pentecost, breathless things happened, if you pardon the pun. Amazing things happened. And they could not have been predicted until they actually happened. So for us today, I want to look at three aspects of Pentecost, if we, if we have enough time. Three aspects of Pentecost. And they may seem disconnected, but they're actually not. And, and they're, they're my subtitle here. A dwelling place, a beachhead, and a new creation. A dwelling place, a beachhead, and a new creation. So let's begin on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. How many times have we heard this? How many times have you kept Pentecost? You've at least heard it that many times, right? 30, 40, 50 times. We can, we can quote this verbatim. Think about being there when that happened. They're all gathered together. They're talking about all the things that happened in Jerusalem. Everything that happened to Jesus, the, the resurrection, the resurrection of all kinds of other people, astounding events that took place just 50 days ago. And the sighting of Jesus for 40 days after his resurrection. And they're talking about this and excited about this. And then God interrupts things with a rushing, mighty wind to get everybody's attention. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. <clears throat> so when you think about this, when you think about this moment, when you read those scriptures, you can see there's a lot going on in this day. There was appearance of fire above everybody's head. I mean, how cool would that be if we could have that right now? I mean, depending on how much oil you put on your hair, I mean, it could cause a problem. Would we be astonished? I think we'd be astonished. And then we'd be astonished or maybe surprised at our astonishment because this is the God that we serve who can do things like that. What else happened on that day? A rushing, mighty wind. Well, we live in Oklahoma. We're kind of used to that, right? But inside the building, that's generally not a good sign. On this day, it was a powerful sign that something amazing is happening. Then we see people speaking in other languages. Later on, we can read of how they are now sharing the good news, the gospel, that they're excited about and filled with, and they're speaking in all the languages of all the listening ears. How cool would that be? 
maybe one day you guys could understand me. Right? If I had that, that would be an amazing moment to see. And yet, that's not the most amazing thing that happened on Pentecost. At least, I don't think so. The most amazing thing wasn't even that this, this man who denied Jesus three times just 50 days ago is now standing boldly before a crowd of people proclaiming the gospel in his first sermon. His first sermon that we have recorded anyway. With boldness, without fear. What a transformation of that man. A beautiful transformation, and yet that's still not the most amazing thing that happened on that day. What do you think is the most amazing thing that happened on that day? Anybody having an idea? Not a trick question. The giving of the Holy Spirit. Yes. And more than just the giving... It was a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. A pouring out just liberally on whoever was gathered there, whoever was there in faith, ready for, well, he said something about a comforter, but I'm not exactly sure what that is. And yet, there they were in faith, obeying Jesus, gathered together, staying in Jerusalem, waiting for that moment, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. This had not happened this way before. Now, you know, we can turn into the Old Testament. We can do some work and we can find a fair number of people that had the Holy Spirit. But the amount of people that I find in that study is significantly less than the amount of people that received the Holy Spirit in this one single day. Now, of course, we don't know. There was thousands of years, and God interacts with so many people and could have interacted with way more people than we know that's recorded in Scripture. But from what we see through Scripture, <clears throat> this was an amazing moment in history when the Holy Spirit was liberally poured out onto people that were not the smartest, not the most educated, not the most well-connected, maybe not the most attractive. They weren't identified as being people in the know and the most important. They were followers of Jesus. Followed him through thick and thin. They trusted in him when they saw that he had died. And then when he had raised again, they gripped onto the promise of something that was coming in 50 days' time. You know, and we're told to count 50 days, right, to Pentecost. What was their countdown like? How excited were they to arrive at that day and then to receive the Holy Spirit? In Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, Peter stand, stands up and he says... <clears throat> He raises his voice and said to the men of Judea 
and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you, and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. Now, how bold do you have to be to say, I'm going to read you, or I'm going to read from memory, I'm going to speak from memory a prophecy, and I'm telling you it's just now coming to pass. That's a powerful moment, right? You really have to be right about this. And of course, he absolutely was. It shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. Now, this is what they did. They prophesied. They were speaking out. They were telling the truth, telling the gospel in all of these languages of all the people that were gathered there. And then there is something to come later. Sometime still for us in the future. It says, I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I have a question. It's just a thought. But the second part of that prophecy, I wonder if that will start again on the day of Pentecost. At the time toward the end, before the coming of the day of the Lord. That would be poetic, wouldn't it? That would be certainly something that God would do. To think about, again, the meaning of this day for the people that lived in Jerusalem, that were gathered there. Because without this day, seemingly, without this marking, this moment in time, the Holy Spirit would not have been poured out continually then on the church, all the way down to us. We are the inheritors of what happened on that day. We have a, a, a part in this. We partake of it. When we celebrate, when we remember, we are remembering that this was the instance when that spirit was also now find its way to us through space and through time. It connects us. And more than that, the Holy Spirit that's in us was in them. How much more then are we connected to each one of those believers through space and through time? You know, it's a little hard to imagine that they had any idea that this was going to be what was given at Pentecost, to the fullest extent of this. I mean, just think about it. We are frail, weak 
human beings with our shortcomings, all of our shortcomings, all of our mistakes, all of our sins. And yet, God, through Christ Jesus, has made a way for us to receive the Holy Spirit. That should tell us something. That should tell us something about how perfect we need to be in order to receive the Holy Spirit. How perfect do we need to be? How ready, how free from sin do we need to be to receive the Holy Spirit? 10%? 20? 50? Any takers on 70% perfect? 100% perfect? Zero. It's only the work of the Holy Spirit in us that brings about that righteousness in Christ Jesus. And so here we are, we find all of these people, Peter included, with their frailties and their weaknesses, and they were just denying Jesus not too long ago. But the work of the Holy Spirit raised him up in boldness. Think about that for your life, for who you are, and the challenges that you face. The Holy Spirit works in us in spite of our sin, in spite of our weakness. And so here they are, receiving the Holy Spirit, receiving the limitless power that created and sustains the universe. And it was freely poured out. And I just have this image of it just being poured out, like, like the oil was poured out over, over Aaron, right? It was just liberally Everywhere, everyone received it. This is an astonishing moment. And I think in many ways, this is when we, as the church, and as individuals in the church, become the dwelling place of God. We tend to think of tabernacles as as a lot of that symbolism and that imagery for being a tabernacle, a dwelling place of God. But it's really when the Spirit comes into us and we become that dwelling place. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? The temple of the Holy Spirit. The dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. Think about that further. Because it's not just that we were made to be or that we became, rather, the temple of the Holy Spirit. This was the purpose of our existence all along. We are made to be temples of the Holy Spirit. This is why we were made. Temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. All that we have, everything that we think we are as a sovereign individual, belongs to him, body and spirit. And so we became that temple, didn't we? On Pentecost, the church became that temple 
And this is why we have the sacred assembly. This, to me, is why we remember this day. It's not just a, an Old Testament practice that we brought into the New Testament. It is a Christian practice. At its core, it is a reminder of what God is doing with each one of us. An astonishing thing that he's doing in us with his Holy Spirit poured into us liberally in each and every one. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. We have become this new creature, this new temple in Christ Jesus. It's so easy for us to forget this, though, right? When we receive some bad news, when we get some challenges at work, when we are struggling with illness, when we have financial trouble, when we have problems with our children, in our marriages, in our relationships, doesn't seem to be the first thing we remember that we are the temple of God, does it? It's easy for us to forget when we're in fear. We forget how much power is in us when we are in fear. When we feel weak, we forget how much strength is in us through the Holy Spirit. And we feel like maybe we're missing something. Maybe we're Maybe I'm not using the Holy Spirit. Maybe I don't have it. Has anybody ever worried that? It wouldn't be unusual. King David in the psalm says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, I pray. He probably wasn't feeling all that strong in the Spirit when he wrote that at that moment. It's hard for us to remember we easily forget the power that is in us and the care that God has for us. That he did this. He placed his Holy Spirit in us for a reason. Paul wrestles with the same challenge, I think, in Romans chapter 7 and verse 21. And I'm, I'm going to read a few passages here from the NLT because I, I think in some ways, for, for today anyway, it makes a little bit clearer. He says, I have discovered this principle of life. And in the New King James or the King James, it, it says, you know, I, I see a law working in my, my body, in my flesh. It doesn't mean law as in it's a, it's a thing that has to be followed. It's really a principle. It's almost like a process. He says, I see this process or this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. When I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me 
that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? I thank God. The answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sin and my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Again, when he talks about it in the, in the New King James, which or you may have the King James, it doesn't mean a law that needs to be followed. We're, you know, when I read that, I almost, it was like, okay, the, like the body has to follow this law. It feels like that, maybe. But it's really this process that works out in our flesh that we feel sometimes that we struggle with. It's a process that brings about sickness. It brings about addictions. It brings about obsessions, compulsions. It brings about physical and spiritual idolatry. It brings about these unhealthy things that mar and, and wound our life and our heart, and then out of those places, then we sin. That is that birthplace of those sin motivations. But these things are processes and principles, or these things that work in us, they are working to death. But Paul doesn't leave us there, does he? He doesn't say that this is where we're stuck. I mean, he's kind of saying that. He says, well, okay, in my mind I really want to obey the law of God, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. Period. The end. Okay. Well, we're stuck. Well, he doesn't leave us there. He continues on in the next chapter. It's really a continuation of the thought. Because he shows us what the Holy Spirit does in us. If you ever doubt the working of the Holy Spirit in your life, because you don't have tongues of fire over your head, or you don't have powerful movements within your life, or you think you don't, go through this and think on these things, and you will see the working of the Holy Spirit. He says, So, now... There is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Period. Stop right there. Consider that thought. You are no longer condemned. Stop. Accept that before moving on. Right? Because the, the mind says, well, you know, I, I sinned last, just yesterday whatever that was, or the day before, or last week, or I did this thing. Okay. It's still a process. It's still working in us, isn't it? But we have to believe this statement. And we need to not start playing mind games with ourselves and saying, well, therefore, if I sin, I must not be in Christ Jesus. It's critical we don't go down that path. He says, and because you belong to him, 
The power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The Lord of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fulfilled, fully satisfied in us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. So, he's introducing this new thing here. That we do not follow our sinful nature. And when you look at this passage, he says, you know, well, verses, uh, what, two, two through, or one through three sound pretty good, right? There's no condemnation for us. We belong to him. We have the power of life-giving spirit in us, and we've been freed. Do we accept those things? Did he, and then he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied in us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read that, I'm like, aha! But I, I, I sinned just the other day. So, am I negating this? Am I, am I, do I have the Spirit? Is it really working in me when I fail, when I miss the mark? Maybe you don't have those thoughts. I suspect I'm not all that different from everybody else. We might have those doubts at times. But the question is, did we plan to do evil that day? When we arose from our bed and we did our morning meditation or our prayers or whatever your practice is, did we plan at 2 o'clock in the afternoon to get angry at your child or your parent or your co-worker and chew them out? Did we plan to do that? We did not. If we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, our goal for the day is to follow the leading of the Spirit, to follow the Word of God, to do our best. And then, sometimes we miss the mark. Right? And we sin. And you know, that word sin, we just carry so much pressure on ourselves with that word. I'm not trying to negate it. The wages of sin are death. I mean, that's it. Absolutely, the wages of sin are death. But it's about missing the mark. It's about not hitting the bullseye every time. It made me think about, I took uh, Benjamin shooting for the first time a few weeks back. And it was his first time shooting, and we were, we were just shooting 22s and having fun. And he was hitting the mark way more than I was. Young eyes, young arms, better coordination. 
But still, there was a moment there where I was helping him uh, hold the rifle correctly. hadn't done that before. So we kind of went through some things. And I was putting my arms around him and just, okay, this is, you know, line it up this way. Here's the sights, so on. Pretty straightforward. You know, make sure you have it facing the right direction. Things of that nature. Gun safety. But that's what Christ Jesus comes to us with. When we are trying to hit the mark, you know, Paul says, that which I want to do, I don't do. I'm like, I'm, get. And that was what I was doing that day. I was like, I'm using the handgun and I'm trying to hit the bullseye and I'm just about making the target out here on the edge. But Christ comes alongside us. He comes around us and he helps us to zero in that mark. Now fire. Now hit the mark. But there's a process that works in that. When we miss the mark, Jesus brings about a process through the Holy Spirit that helps us. Helps us to heal and hit the mark. Continuing on in verse 5, he says, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So, letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. This is a critical point for us. Because we all want to hit the mark. Right, We all try our best to hit the mark. We are working hard. We're doing everything we can. We're aligning ourselves against the target to hit the mark. And in reality, we actually have to let go of that. Because it says here, letting the spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. So we're actually letting the spirit align us to hit the mark. There's a difference. Us trying our best is like trying to keep the law, which was not achievable because of the sin that was already in us. So we're just trying our best instead of letting the Spirit guide us. The Spirit of God has to control our mind. We need to let the Spirit of God into our minds. Well, how do we do that? Well, when we miss the mark, we need to pray about that. We need to take that to God. We need to engage with the Holy Spirit that's in us and ask for God to guide us through his Spirit. Why did I do that? What was my motivation for doing that? Why did I take that moment and sin in that moment. Why did I do that? And be willing to be circumspect and look at ourselves. That is the working of the Holy Spirit in us. Letting it do its work. It's not going to force us. It's not going to magically make us righteous. It's not going to pretend that we don't hit the mark. It needs to help us in those weaknesses 
what Paul is telling us here. He actually says in the New King James Version, it says to be spiritually minded. To let the Spirit of God guide our mind, especially in our weaknesses and our failings. Paul continues in verse 7, he says, For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And Christ lives within you. So even so, even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. And I love the way it says it here because it's, it makes it inevitable. Just as the Spirit was in Christ Jesus, just as it could not be contained in the grave, it could not be left there. It would have to. It requires that he be raised again to life. That same Spirit is in us. It requires that we be raised again to eternal life after we have died at one time. That's the Spirit that lives in us. That's the Spirit that was poured out at Pentecost. Poured out liberally on everyone that is there. That's the Spirit that we receive when, when we are baptized. When we receive that Spirit. It will demand this grave right here must be resurrected. Wherever we are. When we die in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For you, if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if, through the power of the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. Easier said than done, right? Put to death the sinful deeds that sinful nature. How do you do that? How do you put those things to death? What comes to your mind right now when you're thinking about, well, how do I, how do I put those sinful natures to death? How do I mortify those things? As the King James puts it. Well, I need to pray more. I need to read my Bible more. Um, I need to do all of these practices more. No, we need to pray more. And we need to read our Bible more. But that's not part of this question. What is it that we need to do in order to mortify the deeds of the flesh? To kill off those things. We have to let the Holy Spirit do its work in us. Now that may sound, well, okay, that's nice Christian speak, <laughs> you know. 
That's things that nice Christians say. What does that mean? Well, we have to think about what our sin motivations are. Why do we sin? What are we sinning out of? When we're bad-tempered and angry, why are we bad-tempered and angry? Is it because somebody wronged us? Is it because we have some stresses in our life that we are carrying and we are in idolatry trying to take care of ourselves and not giving them to God? Cast all your cares on him, it says. Because he cares for us. What is the sin motivation? To my mind, the sin motivation is the brokenness, the wounding that we received in our life and in our heart. That's where we're sinning out of. They're the deep sins and lies that we have believed. And then now we are acting out of those places. Our actions are being directed by those wounded and broken thoughts and ideas about ourselves. There's nothing we could possibly do to fix that. It is the work of the Spirit that fixes that. We have to invite God into those places. Ask Him to bring truth. Ask Him to bring healing. To bring about a restoration in us. And when we do, the sin motivations that we have in our life, the sin motivations that drive us to obsession or addictions or fearful behavior or whatever it may be, they start to dissipate and they start to go away. Not overnight, but with that continual treatment. In verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. So you have not received the spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you've received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call to him, Abba Father. But his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are the children of God. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are the heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. And what is that suffering? What was the suffering that Christ had? Truly, what was the thing that he suffered the most? Our sin. He suffered because of our sin. He took upon himself in his broken body our sin, all of the things that we did, all the wounds that he bore in his body. He took all of that on himself. That was his suffering. And he says that we are to share in his suffering. It hurts to deal with our own brokenness. It hurts to deal with our own sin motivation. It makes us ashamed. It makes us feel guilty. It hurts. It brings about painful memories. 
that is what we have to get into. That is what we have to let the Holy Spirit heal and work within us. And that is part of what God did at Pentecost. What he does in our lives. Because one of the things he did in Pentecost, you could look at as an invasion. You could classify this as an invasion. Right? Because the Holy Spirit came into this world, invaded the enemy's territory, and said, this group of people now are the children of God. And changed each and every one, and each and every heart. It's an invasion of God's Spirit, personally, as well. And I use the word invasion because, as you can probably tell by Benjamin's uniform today, he's wearing as a remembrance of D-Day, which is tomorrow. And it, it came to me, just in my mind, and I've talked about this before, about the symbolism between what God is doing in this earth and what happened in D-Day on June 6th, 1944. It's an invasion. And he created a beachhead. Now, for those of you that know what a, a beachhead is, it's a temporary line or area created when a military unit or army reaches a landing beach by sea and begins to defend the area so other reinforcements can arrive. That's a beachhead. So invasion from the sea and landing in that area and pushing the enemy back and now giving safe cover for more reinforcements to come in and engage with the enemy. When we receive the Holy Spirit of God, that's exactly what happens. It's an invasion into our being. Now, we welcome it, and we ask for it. <laughs> but which of us really knew what we were asking for when we asked for it? Did we realize that it was going to totally and radically reshape our life in the way that it has? Well, how could we? But yet, it did. It created a place within us, a temple, right? A special place within us. And more and more and more reinforcements come in. Why? Because there's a battleground going on inside of us. And that old process that we've just talked about is warring against this new creature, this new beachhead that has been formed in our minds and in our hearts. That's what happens when there's an invasion. And then, of course, in the larger sense, God invaded the earth, right? Because he actually now sent an army of people through Pentecost into the earth to affect and change the world in ways that they never imagined. But it's interesting, so in D-Day, lots of people look at that day as the day in which, really, the end of the war began. Because the power that was behind that invasion was so massive that as long as the invasion was successful, the enemy would 
fall. Just a matter of time. And so, as June 7th rolled around on Normandy, that was assured. It was too powerful a force, ultimately, to stop. And Germany eventually capitulated less than a year later. After, what, five years of strength and power in the war. That's the kind of power, but much greater, that lies behind the beachhead that has been developed in each one of us, that has developed into this earth. And it feels like it's not that way around. It feels like we're losing the battle. It feels like that the enemy is constantly gaining ground. But what did Jesus promise us? That this church would not yield. It would not yield to the gates of hell. It doesn't matter what comes against this church. It will not fail. So, Pentecost is also a type of an invasion. We might not think about it this way. For, for me and the way my mind works, that's the way I think about it. And that's what I hold on to. But God has created a beachhead. And so therefore, it's important for us to remember that with that, we are still in a world at war. In us, in our hearts, in our minds, and of course, in the world in general. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 1, when Jesus sends out his disciples into the world, he gives us a further insight into how he viewed the work of the church. Of course, this was before Pentecost, but it was setting the, the road map ahead for them and helping them see what the work of the church was going to be. And it says, after these things, the, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And he said unto them, The harvest is truly great, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray the Lord of the harvest to send out our laborers into this harvest. Go your, go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, First say peace to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it, and if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. He's sending them out as lambs among wolves. How would you feel if you were amongst the 70 there? And Jesus tells you that. All right, I want you to go to this city. I want you to go to this city. Oh, and by the way, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Oh, thanks. But that's what we're in. We are lambs amongst wolves. We are an invading force, and for now, we are outnumbered woefully outnumbered and we are surrounded on every side and Jesus says go into all the towns 
and the villages and the places where I sent you. He calls us to do that. It's the calling of Pentecost. It's right there at the birth of the church. He didn't give them the ability to speak languages so they could show off, right? It was so that they could preach this gospel to the ends of the earth as lambs amongst wolves and push out as far as possible, as far as they're able to push out that beachhead and to create more room for the church to grow and to continue to preach that message, to continue to be lambs among wolves. Share the gospel. Heal the sick. Gave them the power to heal the sick. Spread the kingdom of God. Turning back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18, I'm going to switch back to the New King James. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Pentecost first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body, but of the world. We groan with the world. For we are saved in this hope. But the hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But we still hope for it. Because we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen it in our body. We haven't seen it in the world. So we continue to hope. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance persevering, keeping Pentecost year after year, looking for this fulfillment, for this final day of the Lord to appear, for maybe another Pentecost to take place. We do all of these things. We have this hope. We have this perseverance. But there's a deeper message in here. Because it's not just about our own individual new life and new body and the return of our good looks. Well, maybe I'd get some good looks this time. It's not just about the beachhead in our own hearts, is it? It's not about, not just about that. It's about this whole world being redeemed. The whole creation being liberated. What would that be like? When we think about that, Jesus has returned. The children of God are in Jerusalem. 
they're in the kingdom of God, what does that look like? What does the whole world look like? Well, immediately, it's got a lot of problems, as we can tell from prophecy. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's lots of things to be done. I wish, when Jesus returns, that everything would be healed. But that's not what we've gotten from the beginning, is it? All the way back in Genesis, God said to Adam and Eve, to tend and keep the garden and to, to manage it and grow it. And that one garden was supposed to grow over the whole earth. Grow over the, all the disorganized chaos that was outside of that garden. That's where we're coming back to. We are having, we're going to be looking at a world that is in pain and struggle and turmoil. And God says, through us, through the saints, the saints that are currently planted as seeds in the ground that we will see resurrected, all the way through to the saints that have yet to be born, he's going to heal that world to come through us. How is he going to do that? Well, there's something I've learned recently. You know, I've talked about the pastoral counseling that uh, I'm, I'm doing, some of us are doing, and there's a really interesting concept, and, and I believe it to be true, is that damage, abuse, wounding, pain is a, inflicted upon us in community, right? Because people do bad things to people. We've just seen that this last week and the week before. And continually, it seems like, in the news headlines of people doing evil, despicable things to one another. And they do it in community, right? We don't kind of think of it that way. But, you know, we all wish that one of these shooters would just go shoot himself first. But no, they have to go and damage and inflict hate and woundedness and evil on community. Wounding happens in community. Therefore, healing has to happen in community. And we kind of know that on a basic level, don't we? Because we come together in those times of mourning. We come together to, to just commiserate and, and to pray and to hope for the return of Jesus to put these things to an end. But this is a real truth. That healing and restoration has to come through a community of believers. And I think this is a fundamental truth. And I think this is what we find in, in Revelation. This is what we find in the work of the church in the end times. This is what I think Paul was talking about when this, it says the whole creation was waiting for this healing. I'm just going to jump forward a little bit. We're familiar with the beautiful images that we have of the kingdom of God. How we arrive there and how we arrive at a place that is rich and full of life, that is full of health and strength and beauty and free from the influences of sin and Satan. Jeremiah 17, verses one through, uh, 7 through 8, it says, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, 
and those who hope is the, <coughs> uh, and those and whose hope is in, in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by waters, which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will it cease from yielding fruit. And then in Psalm chapter 1 and verse 1, Blessed is the man who's, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But he's led by the Spirit of God, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be a, like a tree planted by rivers of waters that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does, what, whatever he does shall prosper. And then Proverbs 11.30, the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he who wins souls is wise. But then we see Revelation. And in Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, we're presented with this image that we are pretty familiar with. We see another tree. When we see this tree, it, it, its roots stretch over the sides of the river of life from one bank to another. I just have this thought. Is this a real tree? Is this an actual physical tree that will be there? It could be. Absolutely. Does it also represent something else? Does it also represent something like what I've just read about the healing and the power of the saints, of the men and women of God that are by the river, that are like a tree planted by the river. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, it says in Proverbs 11.30, and he who wins souls is wise. Could it be that the tree that we see in Revelation in Revelation 22 is both literal and figurative. And that the healing that is brought about is through the saints. In verse 1 he said, I sh He showed me a, a pure river of the water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit in every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. What are they serving him in? Well, it's right by the tree. It's right by the healing of the nations. Think about that that we may well be those trees or a symbol or representative of being the tree of life because we have the Spirit of God in us. It has healed us. Christ Jesus has created in us a new creature. And Paul has said and promised that the whole creation itself will be redeemed through the adoption through the children of God. 
it may well be that we are a part or have a role in the symbolism and the power and the real healing that the tree of life brings upon the world. So this is just three aspects that came to mind to me when I was studying for Pentecost. That we are both the dwelling place of God, that we are a beachhead in the world as we have a beachhead inside of us growing and growing out and pushing out the enemy. And we are a new creation helping God to bring about ultimately another new creation.